This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's scripture passage comes from Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, Frederick the Great, the former king of Prussia, um, was a skeptic and he was agnostic. But ironically, he had a chaplain in his court. And so one day he has a discussion with this chaplain and he asks him, If your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very brief proof. So often, when I have asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I have been given some enormous volume that I have neither the time nor disposition to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate that fact simply. Forget long arguments. Give me the proof of the Bible's inspiration in one word. And the chaplain looks to Frederick the Great and he says, My majesty, I can give you one word. And obviously, Frederick is skeptical, and he's like, yeah, right, you you can't really do that. And he says, your majesty, Israel, Israel. And the chaplain shocks Frederick, and and the story goes that Frederick the Great from there had nothing to say. He was speechless. And the chaplain's argument was this, that despite Israel's history, all the affliction that they had gone through as a people, they were still standing. No enemy had prevailed against them, proving God and his promises are true. And that is what today's psalm is about. Nothing else could explain the Jews' survival except for God, God's care and his love over his people. So we're going to look at this psalm today. And we're going to see God's people enduring affliction. We're going to see Israel enduring affliction. As we do, we're going to look at how we can endure the affliction that we encounter in our lives. And we'll work through the passage like this. First, we're going to go through being preserved in affliction, heard in affliction, and not alone in affliction. Preserved, heard, and not alone. So preserved in affliction. Let's look down, with, uh, look down again to verse 1. And so this psalm starts off in a single voice, a cantor, a presider, if you will, is singing out in his solo voice saying, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And he invites the people of God to all join him in the singing and say, let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me in my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Israel is a nation that is well acquainted with affliction. The from the youth that we see here in verses 1 and 2 refers to the time of Israel when they were a young nation. In Hosea 11.1, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called 
my son. In the early days of that nation, the people of Israel were under affliction and oppression in Egypt. And as that story goes, God had preserved them through that time, and he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Now, as Israel grew as a nation, we fast forward some time later during the period of the judges. And what do we see in the period of judges? Peace in Israel? No. But we see even more affliction. The small little nation surrounded by enemies, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and many more, all trying to invade, conquer, and oppress Israel. But through it all, we see God preserving his people. Fast forward a little bit more. We go to the era of the kings. And we are all familiar with the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivity, where these superpowers come in, capture Israel, and send their people out into exile. And again, God preserves his people through this time. Eventually, the Greeks would come and oppress Israel. And as Jesus walked this earth, the Romans would oppress Israel. And even on the other side of the cross, on our modern-day history, we remember the travesty that happened to the nation and the people of Israel in the Holocaust. The Israelites have been a people well acquainted with affliction. And the psalmist here, he's able to shout out, even yet they have not prevailed against me. And so how is that? How was it that Israel was able to endure all this suffering and affliction? We see in verse 4 it says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, the word righteous here does not necessarily mean that God is holy, good, and just. He is that. But this righteous that is being referred to in this passage is referring to God's faithfulness to his covenants. God is righteous because he is faithful to his promises to his people. And he's promised to be their God and to make them a mighty nation And so he breaks the cords of her enemy and sets her free. That's the reality of Israel's history. Affliction, oppression, but preservation from God because he keeps his covenants. But this is not only the reality of Israel, but of the church as well. If we look at early church history, Christianity was birthed out of affliction. It was birthed out of persecution, countless martyrs. We see that the 11 out of the 12 disciples, they themselves were martyred for the faith. Christians were blamed for natural disasters. They were accused of black magic, immorality, and all sorts of nonsense. And it was for nearly four centuries, Christianity suffered under this type of affliction. But yet the church today can say they have not prevailed against me. John Buchan has this quote. It says, the church of Christ is an anvil in which which has worn out many hammers. Our opponents may boast of their strength, but they do not realize what they have challenged. The affliction that came down on church, they don't realize that God is righteous, that he is powerful, and that he keeps his promises to his people. And so for the Christian, for us as well. Our journeys are marked by affliction, but at the same time, it's marked by preservation from God because he is faithful. Now, this series 
uh, the Songs of Ascent is 15 Psalms, 120 to 134. And as we've been going through it, there's a progression in the song that the pilgrims sing. And it represents the progression that a Christian has in his journey. And if we look at the words that are being sung, sung here today, I want us to think about it. Like, it's, it's peculiar, the words that we, we sing. What, what is the content of the song of the pilgrim in this, in, in this psalm? He's singing about affliction. He's singing about affliction. Who sings about affliction? Right? True, we have a music industry. They do sing about affliction. If you look at, you know, the love songs, right? They sing about how their heart has been afflicted and how they've, their heart has been torn out, that they've been betrayed or they lost a loved one. But the overall tone of these songs, what is it? It's one of depression, and it's not very happy, and it ends on a very uh, sad note. And there's other industries, other, I mean, genres, like punk rock or heavy metal, talking about oppression from the man or, you know, what other, other types of affliction. But the general mood of those songs are what? It's, it's, it's anger and resentment for the affliction. And then we have a whole genre of music that's all about affliction. But the name itself represents what the songs are about. Blues, right? Depression. But the Christian, when the Christian sings about affliction, it's different. It's much different. They sing about affliction, but in that affliction, there is hope. They sing about affliction because as they've gone through it, they've walked with God and they've come to develop a relationship with him, an intimacy with the Lord as they've been preserved. And so this pilgrim sings a song reminded of all the times that the people of Israel have faced affliction and God had preserved them. And as we develop a deep trust and intimacy with God when we walk through him in our affliction, that enables us to be able to sing about the afflictions as we face. Tim Keller uh, says this about our afflictions. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. There's something about our afflictions. There's something about the struggles that we go through that if we walk with God and we depend on him through him, we meet him and we experience him. We, we, we experience his care and his provision and his sovereignty over our lives. It deepens our faith and our trust in him so that we can sing about our afflictions with hope and with joy. There's a lady um, named Joni Erickson Tada. Uh, some of you might be familiar with her, but she's a famous Christian author, a, a Christian figure. And right now she's about, um, I think, 70-some years old. But uh, at the age of 17, um, she was just a young, vibrant young woman, athletic, full of promise and hope. And one day she headed over to the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland with her friends uh, to go for a swim. And unknowingly, she dived headfirst into shallow water. And um, she became paralyzed after that. She became a paraplegic. She lost control of her arms and her legs. And that day changed her life forever. This handicap deeply, deeply afflicted her mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. There are periods uh, in the beginning where it nearly drove her to suicide. She had no hope in living anymore. But God was preserving her. 
There were other seasons where there was this deep hope and longing for healing as she would scour the pages of the Bible of all the instances of healing and just try to learn about them and try to receive that healing the Bible speaks about. She went on these crusades where she would go to these conferences to try to receive healing. But even after that period, she remained paralyzed. And so she felt empty, confused, disillusioned. But even through that season, God was preserving her. And eventually, as as she was struggling through all of this, she began to dig deep. She began to dig, dig, dig deep into the gospel to know that even though she has not received a physical healing, that she received a greater spiritual healing. And as she began to grow and walk with Christ in her affliction, her life began to change. Her despair, her depression turned to a great hope. She learned ways to be able to maneuver and, you know, work one of those wheelchairs. And eventually she got to the point where she would be able to share her story. She would share the gospel about all the challenges she went through and how God held her close and preserved her through it all. And now, and now, this is the thing. She thanks God for not healing her. She thanks God for not healing her because it was through that affliction, through what happened in her life, that she met and experienced God in a way that she never thought she could have. It was through her affliction she got more of God. And this this quote of hers, it just got me when I read it this week. She says, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. There is something about the affliction and the suffering and the troubles of our lives that when we walk with God, when we start to depend on him, we experience him and he becomes real in our lives. We develop a deep trust and intimacy with God when we walk with him through affliction. So church, I encourage you, the afflictions that you face in your life right now. It can be easy for us when we face these challenging times to think, you know what, I think God really doesn't care about my affliction because it's not being resolved in the way that I think it should be resolved. There are times that we can think that, you know what, God really doesn't love me because I'm going through this particular affliction. If God really truly loved me, he wouldn't allow this hardship in my life. And when we go into feeding these lives, we fall into defeat and we lose hope and we go into despair. But Christian, remember the words of the pilgrim in this song today, that God is righteous. He is faithful to preserve you through whatever affliction comes your way. And if you walk with him through your affliction, You'll taste and experience his goodness in ways that you might not have when everything is going well. And as you walk with him, don't force your will upon him, but open yourselves to receive his will and what he wants to do through whatever is afflicting you. Depend and trust on him. You will find his embrace. The deeper the affliction, the closer his embrace. And you will be able to sing just like the pilgrim, I am terribly afflicted, but they will not prevail against me. 
Next, we're going to look at being heard in affliction. Heard in affliction. Let's look down and read verses 5 through 8 one more time. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder or sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The psalmist, he goes from singing about how God has preserved him through affliction to these last four verses. It turns into a prayer. And it's a prayer against those who would afflict the people of God. And it's known as imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms. And that's another word for meaning that it's a psalm of judgment, a psalm of curse, of destruction upon someone. And this can be hard for us to understand and make sense sometimes. We might feel uncomfortable praying these songs over those who might afflict us. Many times we read these songs and we just kind of don't know what to do with them and we gloss over them. But there are about 14 imprecatory psalms in the Bible. And it's something that we cannot ignore as Christians, as God has given us this word and as it models for us how we can pray. So let's work through it. How do we reconcile these passages? First thing um, we got to ask is, how are we to pray against those who afflict us? Because Jesus, did he not teach us to love our enemies and pray for them? He says to bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So surely we must pray for those who abuse us and bless those who, who curse us. And being enemies once with God and having received his grace and being brought into his family, we should pray for our enemies to receive that same grace as well. We pray for the salvation for our enemies. We love them as best we are able. We try to share the gospel with them. But what if that does not happen? What if they persist in afflicting God's people? And they don't turn from the ways, they don't turn from God, but they continue in evil. Are we to pray blessings over them? Certainly not. We would pray that evil would be restrained and that divine justice would prevail. And that's the prayer that we have given to us here today. It's a prayer of no honor, no success, and no blessing. So the first no honor, it's verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame. May all those who are inflicting evil upon God's people, may they be put to shame. Second, we see no success in verses 6 and 7. Let them be like the grass on the house, housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. It paints this image, because back in the day, Israel's houses, they had these dirt roofs, and seeds would sometimes plant themselves in these roofs. In, on these roofs. But the, the soil, however, was so thin that these blades of grass would just sprout out and then wither away really quickly. So the psalmist is praying for the evil ones that their schemes would just wither away. 
And then verse 7 has this image of a harvester who, who, who brings in our harvest, a reaper who brings in the harvest. And he's saying even with the grass that withers for a second and withers away, he's praying that even the remnants of those grass blades would not be, be able to be harvested for any use. The psalmist is praying for no success upon those who would afflict God's people. And in the, finally, we see no blessing in verse 8. It says, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And it's connected to this harvest image we see in verse 7. It was a common practice to bless those who are out in the fields harvesting. We see the example in the book of Ruth, where Boaz arrives in the field and he blesses the harvester, saying, the Lord be with you. And the harvesters would respond, the Lord bless you. And so the psalmist is praying for those who would oppress God, for who would oppress God's people, we would not pray a blessing upon them. We would not bless them, but rather we would pray that their evil would be ceased and God's judgment would be upon them. Now, as we pray these imprecatory prayers, we need also to guard our motives. Because in Romans 12, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again, as we mentioned, as Jesus taught us, we pray for our enemies, we, good, we do good to them, we love them. But if that doesn't work, we can pray for God's judgment upon these people. Sam Storms kind of makes sense of, of this kind of issue that we struggle with, and he, and he says this. We must keep in mind that in most instances, these prayers, these imprecatory prayers for divine judgment come only after extended efforts on the part of the psalmist to call the enemies of God to repentance. These are not cases of momentary resistance to God, but of unrepentant, recalcitrant, incessant hardened and haughty defiance of him. In other words, the psalmist calls for divine judgment against them so long as they persist in their rebellion. We love our enemies by praying for their repentance, but if they callously and consistently refuse, our only recourse is to pray that God's judgment be full and fair. So we are being taught that we are to love our neighbors, to pray for them, but if they persist in their evil ways and persist in afflicting God's people, we can pray for God's judgment over them. We can pray that their evil plans will be stopped. And as we do, we can take comfort that God hears these prayers. In Psalms 10, uh, verse 17, it says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike no more terror. Now, these are general guidelines of how we are to pray for those who are our enemies, for those who would afflict evil upon us. But it can be very difficult to navigate, right? When is praying for your neighbor enough, and then we're able to move to these prayers of judgment? Are we able to really clearly see our hearts in our prayers against the evil 
that is done to us? Can we know the hearts of those who are afflicting us? It's hard to understand. It's hard. It's not clearly outlined for us. But what I think we can learn from these principles that the Bible shows us, and especially what this psalm is showing us, is that we can honestly cry out to God in our affliction. We can cry out to him. We can pray to him and say, God, I am praying for grace upon my oppressor. I'm the ones that are afflicting me. Are afflicting me. And the next day we could pray, God, I've had enough. I cannot take this affliction anymore. Please stop this evil being done to me. And you'll find yourselves, as you're going through affliction, that your prayers will go back and forth. But these prayers are all prayers that God hears as we go through afflictions. And what we're doing as we do it, we're entrusting that affliction to God. We're saying, we trust you that your sovereign will will be done in this situation. And that is where we take comfort as we are facing affliction. We take comfort that he cares for justice, that he cares for the oppressed, and that he loves his church. And next, we're going to finally finish, uh, we're going to finish off with not alone in affliction, not alone in affliction. We'll read verses 1 uh, to 3 again, if you look down into your Bibles. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, that Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. We uh, looked at Hosea 11 earlier in the sermon, and we see that this youth that was, it was being referred to Israel as in their young age as a nation. And again, we'll see this expression being found in the New Testament. When Matthew, in the book of Matthew, when Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt after Jesus' birth, it says this. They remained there, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This psalm is showing us the affliction that was put upon Israel, but is also pointing us to Jesus Christ. The Israelites, the God's people who were acquainted with affliction, their history was covered with affliction and God's preservation. And we see God's faithfulness to preserve them as a nation so that one day the Savior of the world would be born through these people. And as that Savior is born, Jesus Christ himself would be brought out of Egypt and he would become well acquainted with affliction and suffering. In verse 3, it says, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is it's just a powerful image of what was being done to the Israelites as they were in Egypt being oppressed, that their oppressors would whip away at their backs as a, a farmer would plow a field. It's a very uh, descriptive image showing the pain that the Israelites suffered. And we see this image being shown to us again in Isaiah, describing the suffering that Jesus took for us. In 50, uh, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it says this about Jesus, the suffering servant. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And in 53, verses 4 to 5, it says, Surely 
Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. With the beatings that he endured, with those whippings that he took on his back, with the cross being nailed to the cross, we have been healed. And these verses point to Jesus, the suffering servant, as he came down and lived a sinless life so he would be the atonement for our sins. He would die on that cross and suffer the wrath of God. And three days later, he would rise from the grave. Sin and death would not prevail against him. And he ascended to heaven where he's been given a name above all names. And all glory, honor, and praise is given to him. Jesus shows us that the road to glory is filled with affliction and suffering. We see it in the Israelites. We see it in the way the church was birthed, and we see the ultimate example of it in the way Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah, came to save us. And as we follow Jesus, we share in those sufferings. We are afflicted as Jesus was. But here's the thing. We can take great comfort as we go through affliction because, one, we have a Savior who knows our troubles, a Savior who can sympathize. He knows our frame, he knows our pain, and he walks with us through the afflictions. He promises to walk with us through the affliction. Tim Keller says this about suffering and affliction. He says, suffering can refine us rather than destroy us because God himself walks with us in the fire. God himself walks with us in the fire. This past week, I had um, the, the honor and privilege to meet online with a Ukrainian pastor who is on the ground doing ministry in that region of the world right now. Last week, I think it marked the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. And uh, he's been on the ground that whole time doing ministry, preaching the gospel as he hears shellings come upon the city, you know, holding people in their, in their misery and in their sorrow, comforting them as he hears guns being fired in the background. He's seen so much tragedy happen over, over there in the past year. Families being displaced, families losing um, members, being separated. But he's been there through it all because of the hope of this one verse that uh, God just spoke to him through. It's Psalm 23, verse 4. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. And he, and he came to this realization that if Jesus, the great shepherd, would never leave him in his times going through the valley, then he did not want to leave his people as they were going through the valley. So he remained in Ukraine. He made the difficult decision to send his family and his sons away to Europe, and he stayed there to do ministry. And he says this about his time. He says, I don't know all the answers, 
But what I know for sure is that God is with me, and God is with them, the people now. This is most precious, and this is most important. We have a Savior who faced the greatest affliction, and we have a Savior who promises to walk with us as we face our affliction. I want to finish with this, um, this, this short story. Um, there was a um, period of persecution that came upon the church in Scotland in the 17th century. And out of this great bloody persecution where many people lost their lives, there was a, a motto that was formed for the Presbyterian church. And, it's, and the motto is, yet not consumed. Yet not consumed. And along with this motto, there was a logo that was used. And this logo is that of the burning bush that we find in Exodus. It's a theophany where God comes down and speaks with Moses. But what does this bush symbolize? When we look at this bush, we see this fire. But what's happening with the bush? It's not consumed. This fire blazes on, but that bush is preserved. It is not consumed. And that is a picture of our walk as Christians. That is our journey through affliction. That no matter what we go through, no matter what we face, God is preserving us through the affliction. He hears us in our affliction, and he tells us that we are not alone, so that one day he will bring us to glory when we meet Father in heaven. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, Join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.